there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. Are you interested in learning more about what's involved in growing, harvesting, and processing sustainable specialty coffee? Well, if so, you are in for a treat. This is the episode for you, my friends, because my next guest founded Gold Mountain Coffee Growers in Nicaragua in 2007 as a social enterprise to help connect small and medium-sized coffee farms in Nicaragua with coffee roasters in the U.S., Canada, and Europe. But before I introduce you to Ben Weiner, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays, and it has unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals like Ben who are working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign up box is right there. Now, my coffee lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Ben Weiner, the founder, president, and CEO of Gold Mountain Coffee Growers, a direct trade social enterprise that actually connects the farmers of exquisite specialty coffees in Nicaragua with roasters around the world. Ben founded Gold Mountain Coffee Growers in 2007 to try to cut out the middlemen, thereby increasing prices for farmers by up to 100%. As part of his social entrepreneurial endeavors, Ben has carried out a whole bunch of economic empowerment activities, and we are going to learn about them a little bit later. Earlier in his career from 2008 to 2013, Ben served as a legislative assistant to U.S. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. He's a Democrat from Rhode Island, and he advised the senator on U.S. foreign policy. And from 2013 to 2015, Ben was advocacy counsel at Human Rights First, which is a nonpartisan nonprofit founded on human rights. And at that nonprofit, Ben worked to ensure that U.S. policy toward foreign countries promoted a strong rule of law and human rights. Since 2015, for the last five years, Ben has been working full time on Gold Mountain Coffee Growers, which has its own farm in Nicaragua called Finca Idealista. Ben, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Totally ready to go. Wired. Wired. Oh, my (laughs) God. So I have to tell you how amazing it is to finally connect. I know that during the harvesting season, which I believe is typically from October through March. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And even a little bit into April. Okay. And Mm -hmm. I know that during those months, you are up super, super early, like four in the morning early. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes earlier. And there are others who wake up earlier than me. Oh my God. Believe it or not. Yep. Wow. So, what is it like during the summer months? We are doing this interview in mid July. What time does the alarm go off at this time of the year? It's much more manageable now. And now I just kind of wake up at six something without the alarm. But in the transitions, the tricky time, because if you've been waking up at four in the morning, the next day you're just, you just wake up at four in the morning anyway, even if you haven't set your alarm. Wow. And what time do you go to bed? If it's the harvest, I almost don't sleep. I mean, I'll be working on financial and other <laughs> bureaucracy at night. And then we out to pick up pickers early in the morning the next day. So it's challenging if you really throw yourself into the job, into farming, to be a farmer. It's, it's a hard life. Yes. Oh, my God. Well, let's kick things off today by talking about what you're doing right now at Gold Mountain Coffee Growers. And I think maybe we should set things up for Mm -hmm. our listeners to help them understand the coffee supply chain just very, very quickly. You Mm -hmm. don't have to go into any kind of detail at this point, but Mm -hmm. what are all the pieces involved and where do you 
fit into this puzzle? So, yeah, as I mentioned, there are a lot of pieces. So there's farming, which involves so, so much, and you could write a whole book about it. And then there's export and a lot of quality control. Then there's shipping, so exporting and shipping and importing, and then getting the coffee, which is still unroasted, up to the level of roasters who then roast it and either sell it to the public themselves or to other coffee shops and companies, institutions. And so Gold Mountain Coffee Growers has cut out much of the supply chain. So we do our own exporting and importing to cut out middlemen. And our specialty coffee farming group is able to bring our coffee from our farms, from our flagship farm, Finca and from other farms who are members, all the way up to your local roastery in your community. And so that's something that wasn't traditionally done. And now there are more people trying to do initiatives like what we have set up, which is a great thing really for the world and for supply chains. Is another way of describing what you're doing at Gold Mountain Coffee Growers that you've kind of created a coffee cooperative? I wouldn't quite use the word cooperative because we've seen so much corruption in cooperatives. So we talk about ourselves as a specialty coffee farming group because we actually joined a cooperative that was a fair trade cooperative. And that was when we first started, when we first got our farm. And that was actually part of the reason of why we created our farming group was because farmers in the cooperative started coming to us in hordes saying, this is not letting us feed our families. Can you help us connect directly with roasters? We need to do something different. And so there are farmers who wanted to be entrepreneurs and maybe just didn't have the connections or resources to do it. And so that was why we founded Gold Mountain Coffee Growers to connect all of our farms directly with coffee roasters. And we based it on quality because you know, it was a, a gamble that we'd be more effective if our group was comprised of high cupping coffee, which if you're familiar with wine, it would be like high scores in wine. Well, coffee also gets scores that are high and low. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I think maybe we should just cut right to the chase. We're dancing a little bit around mm -hmm. why your group was important mm -hmm. to found. What is it about the middlemen, those that would have gone in their motorcycles or their trucks and collected the unprocessed beans from the farmers to mm -hmm. then maybe do a little processing yeah. and then send it off to the roasters. What was the problem right. with that? Yeah, well, not to demonize middlemen, but in practice, I mean, I've met middlemen. And when I did my thesis research in Nicaragua, I, I learned that a lot of them are really struggling as well. But all the different levels in the coffee supply chain, and when you have too many levels, there are inefficiencies because everyone along the supply chain needs to make a little bit of money. And by the time the local middleman who drives in a broken down, almost broken down pickup truck to pick up some coffee off the top of a mountain, brings it to a processing plant who then exports it, who gives it to an importer, who then gives it to a roaster or even more levels than that, the farmer is going to see less than 2% of the earnings from that coffee that they worked so hard to produce. So the thing that we did that's different is just cutting out a whole bunch of these different levels, but also trying to be a bit more altruistic in what we're doing and not just taking all this money out of the supply chain and, and away from farmers specifically. We're trying to make more of it go back to farmers. Got it. So how are you doing that? We are the farmers who are supplying the roasters. So we do our own exporting we do our own importing. We do our own distributing. And that doesn't mean that we own the shipping, you know, the actual ship that goes through the Panama Canal. But we've cut out many different businesses that were between our farms and your coffee cup, all the way up in our case to the level of roasters. And so that helps farmers earn more. And we're also, we've also created all kinds of different mechanisms for financing for farms and for different social projects. And so that has also helped us have a bigger positive impact. We actually bought a rainforest just to protect it so that there are these things that we can do that are a bit more altruistic and community friendly at origin. You what? You bought a rainforest? How did you do that? It was there next to our farm. And 
many coffee farms will say, oh, we protect this little corner for nature. But in our case, and really they've chopped down a lot of trees, unfortunately, that there's, you know, there are a lot of evil sides to agriculture. And in our case, we didn't chop down trees to be farming coffee. We bought empty land. And then we also bought forested land next to our farm separately later on just to protect it. And we patrol it with security guards to prevent deforestation, to prevent poaching. There are endangered three-toed sloths in there. There are all kinds of frogs that come out and hop around on our tree, on our coffee trees as well. And it's also a water source for communities down below. There's no question, little by little, it, it was starting to be chopped down. And there are other neighbors who have chopped down lots of forests and it breaks our hearts, you know, walking and driving past those areas that not too long ago were lush forests. So yeah, we we bought a rainforest just to protect it. Amazing. So how many farmers are there in Gold Mountain Coffee Growers? And what do you do actually to help them make more money? Yeah, so there are roughly, and we're adding more over time, but I'd say maybe 50 or more farmers. But if you count all the people working on each farm as farmers, you know, we're up into, and, and all the people who work on sorting coffee and all the different levels, we're talking about thousands of people at the end of the day who work on all this coffee. I mean, on our farm alone, which is a smaller farm, we have about 100 people working on picking coffee during the harvest. So we simply make sure that there aren't all these middlemen just saying, okay, we are going to pay you this really low price and that's it. Take it or leave it. You know, we're working together to get our quality up so that roasters will pay us more so that farmers can earn more. So, yes, farmers are earning more money, but there's more than that. It's also access to finance. So in Nicaragua, there are loan sharks where let's say that you're a farmer and you need money. You might go out and get a loan. And in practice, that loan ends up being at 100% yearly interest. Imagine you borrow $100, you have to pay back $200 in product. That actually happens all the time. And we see it all around us. So we've created mechanisms to have either zero or very low interest loans for farmers in our producing group. We have helped people expand their farms to buy vehicles, have access to farming inputs at reduced rates by putting our buying power together and convincing fertilizer distributors to charge less. But mostly by reaching out directly to roasters and having the roasters be willing to sometimes pay the same thing they were paying, but with less middlemen. And so it ends up benefiting farmers more. Or because it's a higher quality coffee, sometimes they're willing to pay more for a special process or for specific varieties that just simply taste better. And we're so strict on quality. It's another way that we help farmers make more money. Sometimes I'd say it's almost ridiculously strict, but it gets at feeding this whole counterculture about coffee quality. And if that's going to benefit farmers, then we're for it. If it wasn't going to benefit farmers, we probably wouldn't be for it. But we play into it because we want farmers to be able to earn a living and and have a decent standard of living for them, for their families, but also their pickers and communities. I listened to an interview that you gave, Ben, in which you said that specialty coffees should actually be treated like fine wines. What did you mean by that? The amount of work. I mean, I've seen wine vineyards. I'm interested in fermentation and, and the corollaries with coffee similarities, but coffee sometimes it's more work than wine. Maybe there's not as much complexity. Actually, that's not true. There is as much complexity. I mean, we pick coffee cherries at optimal ripeness using these special tools, just like they do on wine vineyards. It's cherry. It's not too different from a grape, although what we're going for is the thing inside the cherry, the coffee bean. We ferment just like people ferment with wine. Now, there are all different ways of fermenting that can affect taste. And we do quality control tasting every separate day of picking so that we are making this really fine product. And I'm a Q grader, which is similar to a sommelier. And 
I actually give coffee scores that are not too different from the scores that are given to wines. And I talk about cupping notes. You know, there might be one coffee that has a lot of peach notes in it, another one that has some cinnamon notes in it, another one that has passion fruit or mango notes or saffron notes or jasmine notes. These are all notes that we actually taste in the coffee, just like people might taste really interesting tasting notes in wine. But also, Andrea, the work that goes into it is immense. And if you look at what you pay for a cup of coffee, I mean, you shouldn't really be paying two or three dollars for a cup of coffee. You should be paying what you're paying for a, a glass of fine wine. Try having your coffee in a, a wine glass that's tempered, that's not going to break, but it's worth it. I mean, you should really think about that when you're drinking your morning cup of coffee, that just as much work, or if not more work, went into that than into the wine that you might enjoy that evening. Amazing. Oh, my God. And I'm going to ask you to take us into a typical day on the job in a moment. But I have to pick up on what you said about the wine making piece, because Mm -hmm. I recently interviewed the head winemaker at the Golan Heights Winery. He happens to be, yeah, he happens to be an American who made Aliyah and is has been living in Israel for Uh the last 30 plus years. And he actually explained to me that, okay, I think 85% of wine is water, 14% is alcohol, and the (laughs) remaining 1%, half of that 1% involves hundreds of thousands of compounds. Mm -hmm. And that is where the art and the science lies. I had no idea that it was that tiny of a fraction of the wine that influenced so much of the flavor, the body. And one of the many things that he's so obsessed with in winemaking is the fact that he said it's almost like taking a trip around the world when Mm -hmm. you uncork a bottle because when it is fine wine, you are tasting things that are unique to that country, to that region, to that farm. Mm-hmm. Is it and the he may same as well with have been coffee? Talking, yeah, yeah. He may as well have been talking about coffee. You could just substitute the word coffee in there and he would be dead on. You know, you could be tasting a fine Pacamara natural process from our farm or from other farms in our farming group, or you could be tasting a geisha. And then the pakamara might taste like blackberries and raspberries and strawberries and apples and all these things. Then you could be tasting a geisha, which is another variety that tastes like jasmine oftentimes. And it's very tea-like. And you could be tasting coffee from Kenya that might have this wonderful white grape-like taste to it. So yeah, you can travel all around the world right at your morning breakfast table. Incredible. Oh my God. I read, and I think it was on your website, that a typical coffee tree, when it's mature, and it takes a minimum of three years, but really up to five years for that to happen, only produces one to one and a half pounds of coffee, and that harvests are only once a year. Yes, it's an awful, awfully hard profession to be a coffee farmer. And when I first started researching coffee, people said to me, you do not go into this to be rich. And there was a actually more wealthy farmer driving me around telling me about coffee. And he was saying, he was talk, talking to me about all the difficulties and what they had to do to be able to farm coffee. And it's pretty ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, five years, you'd be growing coffee if you started from zero without any income. And I mean, the income after the third year, you might have a tiny little crop. But I mean, we're talking, maybe you've spent, depending on your scale, at least thousands of dollars, even if you're pretty small. And maybe you'll make a few hundred back in that third year. And in the fourth year, maybe you'll make a little bit more, but then it won't be until the fifth year that you're really earning. Mm. And even then, if you're not directly connected with markets and have something special, then you're just subsisting. So it's it's very hard to be a coffee farmer. Why are the roasters not in the country where the coffee is grown? So obviously there, there are some local roasters, but for the most part, roasters want or coffee shops or coffee connoisseurs want coffee that tastes good. And coffee, after you roast it, 
about a month after you roast it, it really is starting to fall off and not taste as good. It tastes stale. So that's why you'd have to be express shipping it. And that's very expensive. So it just doesn't make that much economic sense. And so most people are bringing it to destination countries and then roasting it so it's fresh. It's about freshness. Oh, my God. So you mean even though I've got coffee in my freezer right now that has an expiration (laughs) of a year from now, it's probably stale? Yeah. So a lot of companies, if, if you're at home, grab your bag of coffee and or your pod or whatever it might be and see if there is a roast date or an expiration date. If there's an expiration date, it's probably not amazing specialty coffee. And if there is a roast date, I'm not saying it's definitely a specialty coffee, but there's more of a chance that the roaster cares about what that coffee tastes like. And what they're saying is too far off the roast date, it's not going to taste good. And But yeah, what you said specifically, there are some ways. So if you put it in your freezer and there's not a lot of oxygen hitting it and it's not being taken in and out of the freezer, you might be able to get around that problem. And there are other people looking at, you know, how to get around it. But for the most part, you don't want to be having the coffee more than a month after it's roasted. Oh, my God. Well, I still like my coffee and I know Mm -hmm. I haven't tried yours yet, which Mm -hmm. I, of course, will do. But Mm -hmm. it's good. It's bulletproof coffee. I don't know if you're familiar with Dave Asprey. Yeah, I've heard heard a little bit about that. Okay. All right. So let's get into what you do, all the different responsibilities you're juggling as the founder, CEO, and president of Gold Mountain. How many employees do you have and what are you doing? Yeah. So we have a much lighter footprint in the U.S. than in Nicaragua. So in the U.S., it's just a few people who are working on logistics and moving coffee around and helping tell the story about what we do. But in Nicaragua, that's where we are because we're a farming group of farmers in Nicaragua. So we are anywhere from during the off season, you know, the staff of our farming group is anywhere from about, I don't know, 15 to 20 people. But then when it's the harvest season, all of a sudden we are (laughs) ramped up to it could be 100 people working between picking and washing and doing other things just on our farm alone. And then on every other farm in our group, it could be anywhere from 10 up to 100 people. And then we have people sorting the coffee, which could be up to about 80 people. We have managers. We like to promote the role of women because it's a very macho male-dominated society. So our highest up managers are female and they'll be supervising everything that's going on. And then we have other levels of supervisors who are traveling out around the mountains, making sure that there's quality going on. And then my job is to just (laughs) hike, drive, walk around (laughs) and make sure that everything is in line. I do a lot of quality control work still tasting every single day of picking. And I'm looking around at, are we growing, picking, sorting, depulping, fermenting, washing, drying, doing more sorting, packing? Are we doing all that well? Are there any new efficiencies that we have to be coming up with? Or is there problem solving to go on? So it's it's quite the dynamic job and life. And there really aren't two days that are exactly the same. Well, I was just going to ask you, could you take us into a typical day, maybe during the harvesting season yeah. and then now in the off season? Yeah. So in the harvest season, so when I'm in Nicaragua, I like to wake up and go with the pickers up the mountain in a truck. So there's some pickers who live right around our farm, but then there are others who we bring up the mountain and we start our day to pick them up at about four in the morning. So I like to ride with the truck and thank people for coming to work and pick specialty coffee with us. It really makes a difference in people's attitudes when they see that we give a lot of importance to their work and they are our company. Without pickers, we would be nothing. And then... I might go up and you know see how the day is starting with the picking, then go to the dry mill and be tasting, no joke, 200 cups of coffee almost at once wow. within a few hours. 
And there's this whole cupping protocol, which is quality control. And then I'll walk around and see, are we drying the coffee the way that it needs to be done? Are we storing it the right way? And probably somewhere in all that, a roaster will call me and talk to them about what certain coffee might be good for different purposes that they have in their business. And maybe we're doing some social media work and coordinating with our team. I mean, there's just so much going on. Another day, I might be hiking out where a truck can't drive to meet a new farmer and tell them about how our farming group works and maybe accompanying their coffee out to the main road on horseback, oh <laughs> the coffee on horseback and, and us walking <laughs> because we can't carry that much coffee that far because they're so far off the beaten path. Yeah, there really aren't typical days. And when I'm in the US, I am calling customers almost all day long to make sure that they're happy, to make sure that they have the coffee that they need, to talk to them about what new coffees are going to be coming online from the fresh harvest that we're working on. So a lot of reaching out and to customers. And then our team is being very creative with everything from maybe thinking about producing a movie ourselves or doing something that really gets the word out about what we're doing to finance and keeping track of things and, and shipping coffee around as efficiently as possible. So that there's really a lot and I'm making sure that everything happens, but I'm also still very active in the quality control and in reaching out to customers. So when you say customers, are you referring mm -hmm. to your roasters? Is that who your customers are or do they expand beyond that? Mostly roasters. So we do do some consulting on quality control and helping some roasters make good buying decisions. We do sample roasting very, very well because of our extraordinary experience with it in Nicaragua. And so sometimes roasters will call up and ask if they can send us a bunch of different coffees and help us choose the best ones or informally sometimes help them dial in roasts of our coffees. And yeah, but customers are mostly roasters. Okay. And when you talk about your meeting with farmers, I know mm -hmm. among the services that you provide at Gold Mountain Coffee Growers mm -hmm. is advising on different growing strategies, disease mm -hmm. prevention, pruning, fertilization, and I'm sure there are mm -hmm. many others. Is that something that you're doing, Ben, or are there other experts in your company who advise on this? To some extent, me, but more different experts in our company. So, I mean, I've been there for a while, but there are people working within Gold Mountain. I mean, first of all, Gold Mountain, they're farmers. So we're made up of farmers, but then we have quality control staff. And so that quality control staff, I mean, they, since they were, the first day they were born, they were probably even born on a coffee farm, if not the local hospital. And so they've grown up in that environment and they have more experience in many cases than an agronomist with a doctorate degree in coffee diseases because they've seen and experienced and lived how coffee growing works and what works and what doesn't and creative solutions in coffee farming. So and then some some people have high degrees and some don't in our farming group. So yeah, it's a definitely group effort providing lots of advice, also providing a bunch of financial advice because it's hard to run the finances of coffee farms. So sometimes a farmer will ask for a loan and we'll say, well, do you really need that? Or maybe you'd be better off waiting until this certain thing happens. Or did you realize that you have a big payment coming? So maybe you don't need that loan. And while it would result in interest for our group that then goes back into a pot of bigger loans for everyone, maybe maybe you don't need loans. Maybe there's a way to, to get around it. Or have you thought about doing this other way of fertilizing to get a little bit more bang for your efforts? And so that there's a lot of advice that we give. But then at the same time, you know, we're a group of farmers and we do learn from each other. And so it's kind of this whole circle of learning and, and experimenting because the coffee farming world is just, you never stop learning in it. It's quite incredible. Yeah, it sounds fascinating. I have a couple of questions related, one, to sustainability, because I know mm -hmm. that's 
super important to you, the way that you are farming. And then the second being profitability. And Mm -hmm. I know that this is a social enterprise. You're not about making a ton of money to get rich. It's really Mm -hmm. about enriching the community where Mm -hmm. you are working. But clearly you're doing well enough that you bought a rainforest next door. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So... I mean, that was a stretch to do that, but we thought it was also the right thing to do. So sustainability, there's environmental, but also economic sustainability. So you're, you know, you're hitting the nail on the head by mentioning those two in the same breath. So sustainability, we believe in protecting the environment and it's not something that we're forced to do, but it's something that we see that there are so many people chopping down rainforests. And so we bought a rainforest just to protect it with income from coffee sales and wasn't an easy thing to do that. But when roasters get our coffee, they know that these are the kinds of initiatives that they're putting their their money behind on top of it being great coffee. And in terms of profitability and how we achieve that, I mean, it wasn't something that was easy and we'd still like to be more profitable. I mean, the supply chain, despite all the work that we do and putting more value, it's still very challenging because it's hard to produce specialty coffee and have low costs. I mean, it, it does take more effort and more money and people doing so many different things and processes to have a coffee come out tasting awesome. So a lot of that we've achieved by cutting out middlemen and by having incredible coffee. I mean, we, we won or not, we didn't win. Roasters won 27 medals last year alone in roasting competitions using our coffee. They also got above 90 point scores in coffee review, which is probably similar to Wine Spectator or something along those lines in terms of judging the quality of coffees. And in terms of sustainability, we won the, a few years back now, we won the Specialty Coffee Association of Europe's Excellence Award for Sustainability our work on not just buying a rainforest, but also what we do in terms of economic sustainability for whole communities. So it's why we exist. And at the same time, it's really challenging and forces us to continue to be entrepreneurial so that we can keep achieving as much economic and environmental sustainability as possible. So in a minute, we're going to get into your time in school, Ben. But I Mm -hmm. think suffice it to say, You didn't study farming. You didn't study agronomy. You didn't study finance. Mm -hmm. You didn't study social entrepreneurship or international development. You were a political science major. (laughs) And a year after you graduated, you went to law school. Mm -hmm. After graduating from law school in 2007, you worked on Capitol Hill for Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who's a Democrat from Rhode Island, as Mm -hmm. a foreign policy LA, as a foreign policy legislative assistant. And you were in that role for five years. Mm -hmm. You then worked for Human Rights First as an advocacy counsel for two years. How did you go from those white collar office jobs (laughs) To becoming a social entrepreneur in the coffee industry, where, as you said, you are often hiking, you're going through jungles, you're working in the hot sun, and sometimes with your hands in the dirt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there are kind of two roads. There was kind of the mental journey or where my heart has gone in terms of work, and then the actual career journey. And so I still remember studying civil procedure in law school and thinking about people in Guatemala where I had just worked not too long before, the year before, and, you know, very challenged communities. And there was a a mudslide in Guatemala and a lot of people were suffering and had died and I wanted to be doing something. And meanwhile, I was thinking, why am I sitting here in this library where I can hear a pin drop studying Rule 14 and Rule 16B and Rule 56A and all of these very uh, technical legal concepts. So throughout my career, I've been really driven to want to have an impact. And so the way I was able to get through those more boring moments was to think about, okay, I want to be having an impact on my career. And that's why I'm 
studying. And that that's why I should do well on this next test and get through undergrad and get through law school. And in terms of the career paths, I guess it's always been about having an impact. So back in high school, working in journalism, I thought, okay, I want to work in public policy. That'll be my next step because I want to be doing more than just, obviously, I, I put a huge value on journalism. And I think that it's important to get the word out about changes that have to happen. But then I kept seeing this limit of, okay, I'm putting all these articles in our town newspaper, but things aren't changing. You have to actually work on the policy side to change them. So then I thought, okay, I'm going to do poli sci so I can get maybe even law school after that. And then in undergrad, I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to work on domestic policy and education. That's important. But then I went on these trips during, we called it alternative spring break. I went to the Dominican Republic and some other trips and I saw all these ways that I thought I could be changing things internationally on an even bigger scale. And then I interned for in college for Congressman Gebhardt in Missouri. And I started seeing, okay, I could be having a big effect. And people said, you should go to law school. So I did. <laughs> and my dad was a lawyer, a prosecutor. And so I followed in his footsteps a bit. But then I started thinking about all my international experiences and thinking, I want to work on international policy. I want to be a foreign policy LA. I mean, I know that a lot of people might not know exactly what they want to do, but I thought in law school, I know what I want to do. And for any of you listening who are in law school or who might go to law school or, or even get an MBA or something else along those lines, or really any job, your career center, make sure that they don't push you to do something you don't want to do. I remember having this kind of peer pressure, but also pressure from some professionals around who were saying, oh, do you have a job yet? Because everyone else had a high paying job with a huge signing bonus that was probably similar to what I was going to make an entire year working in you know public interest law. And I didn't get my job until after I graduated. And I was looked down upon for that, for not having a job lined up in a high paying law firm a year or even more before graduating. So have faith in yourself and in what you want to do and pursue your dreams and make sure that you do seek out jobs that are going to be meaningful to you. And And then after law school, I just really hit the ground running with a career search and searched all over the hill and started planning to move to DC. And then that was actually when I got this job and I was so elated to have it. And then I worked a lot on international policy and then after that, I started thinking, okay, I want to have a, a direct impact. I'm going to get back into human rights. So I started working on human rights. All the while with this, I had bought a coffee farm and it was kind of a hobby and Gold Mountain Coffee Growers was growing because we did have awesome quality and we were doing a lot of great things, but it was I was just not sleeping at night, doing a lot of work, <laughs> making that function at the same time. And it you know, kind of it grew into a bigger social enterprise. And then it just got to be too much, the coffee work, and then also having a day job. And so eventually I had to say, okay, I'm going to just throw myself 100% into this passion that I love, which is coffee. I'm going to get my curating license, which is like a sommelier, but for coffee, and really help it grow. It was kind of a, I saw this place where it could either kind of stagnate or it could really take off. And, and it was starting to take off to some extent on its own, but it needed a push. And so that was my unconventional career path with the theme behind it being always trying to have a positive impact in the world. That was That's my motivation. So thank you so much for sharing that. But you just kind of slipped in there at the end about how you had bought a coffee farm. Yes. <laughs> so as a how the heck did that come about? And how did you get Gold Mountain off the ground mm -hmm. before you got your Q license? Did you know anything about coffee? I mean, why did you buy a coffee farm? My first experience with coffee was spitting it out when I was a little kid and I thought it was hot chocolate and my mom <laughs> had left it on the kitchen table <laughs> and it had milk in it and it was gross. And it probably was gross coffee, to be fair. <laughs> it probably didn't taste good back then. And so, yeah, as I was graduating law school, I had kept visiting Nicaragua since doing my thesis research there in undergrad. And so I'd kept up friendships and I would travel there. And I'd done some consulting work for a large farm, helping them build some 
safer cook stoves so that people wouldn't be getting pneumonia. Mostly women and kids were getting pneumonia because they were hanging out in the house. And people's idea of a cook stove was just an open hearth with all the smoke going into everybody's lungs and everyone getting bronchitis and pneumonia. And so I did some consulting work on that. And so I kept traveling back to Nicaragua. And along the way, every time I went, I should have read the writing on the wall, but someone would offer me a coffee farm and say, would you like to buy this farm? And I kept saying, no, that's crazy. And then even back then, before I had bought a farm, people started saying, can you help connect us with markets? And I was starting to see, okay, wait, there are some challenges here. And so maybe I should have put two and two together and not bought a coffee farm because it's a losing proposition economically. But I did buy a coffee farm and I still have some old files on my computer about how coffee is going to fund education and we're going to make a difference through coffee in the education world in Nicaragua. But I realized, okay, if this coffee is all sold locally in Nicaragua, I mean, I had friends helping farm it and take care of it. And so first of all, there was corruption. Second of all, there was selling it for below production cost is the way that most people sell their coffee at far too many coffee origins and far too many situations. And many people don't even realize that they're subsisting off their beans and they're subsidizing the coffee world by selling below production costs. And so it was really a losing proposition. So I even back then, just used some of my place in the world of having traveling and being able to move with samples between worlds and offer coffee to roasters to learn a bit about quality and bridge those worlds and, and found Gold Mountain Coffee Growers as a, a group of farmers to bring our coffee directly from farmers to roasters. And so it started having some impact back then, but in a smaller way. And it made our farm, I wouldn't quite say profitable at first, but at least after a few years, we weren't losing money. And then that was just, you know, a hobby that I kept going mostly at night and during vacations, to be honest. It was a passion project. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And I had to learn about coffee and become an expert because of this. So it, it was about the people and about the environment, about the impact. And that was what I realized, oh, I need to be able to talk this talk, but really understand it deeply. And now I can taste coffee and probably tell you what was wrong with the tree because of the way it's tasting. Mm, incredible. So let's flash back really, really quickly to when you were in college. You went to yes. Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. And as I mentioned, you got your BA, magna cum laude, in political science. Mm -hmm. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated, Ben? I listened to a lot of advice from a lot of people, and I had done an internship in Congressman Gephardt's office. I'd done an internship in Senator Kennedy's, Ted Kennedy's office. And a lot of people had said, get a little bit of experience and then go to law school. Most people do at least a year so that they have some life experience before they jump right into law school because law school is pretty heavy on the books and you don't want to burn out. So I more or less knew, okay, I'm going to do something and then I'm going to go to law school and then I want to work in public policy. And I more or less had it pretty clear. I didn't think I was going to get into doing coffee full time a little bit later in my career after seven and a half years after graduating law school. But that that is what ended up happening. My very clear career path took a turn a bunch of years after I started working. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you actually won an award for your honors thesis, which you wrote on Nicaraguan debt relief. Yes. Do you remember enough about that thesis to give us the headline? I'm just curious. Yeah. Did it plant a seed in your brain that was actually germinating then for a number of years about how you might help Nicaragua economically? Yeah, it showed me doing the research for it taught me a lot about how Nicaragua's economy works and how a lot of economies in the developing world work by interviewing so many people. And it gave me the opportunity to say, I'm a student. Can I go in and interview the chief economist of the Central Bank of Nicaragua? And they would say, okay, say, I'm a student. Can I go interview the head of this gigantic exporting corporation? And they'd say, okay, come in on Tuesday at 10 o'clock. And so it really opened a lot of doors doing that research. And the nutshell of the research was there was this debt pardon 
It was called the Highly Indebted Poor Countries Initiative, whereby the IMF, International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank and the Paris Club, which was a bunch of European countries lending to developing countries, were going to pardon the external debt of Nicaragua. And the thinking behind it was that without all of this expensive debt servicing, which are interest payments that countries pay on debt, the country is going to be able to invest in things like education and in roads and all these things and be able to get ahead. And what I researched from an on-the-ground perspective was, or what I found out, was that the roads are so bad in Nicaragua and they should have a great healthcare system, but it lacks a lot of funding. And the electricity goes out every day and the water is non-existent every single day all day long in many places. And your truck's going to break down a hundred times a year or many, many times. And so all of these public goods were non-existent and the transaction costs of doing business were so high that new companies weren't going to emerge in a significant way. And the economy wasn't going to just take off just because you pardoned the external debt because the infrastructure was so poor. And so you need to work on improving the infrastructure simultaneously with any debt relief if the country is going to have any chance of getting ahead. You can't just look at the books and just at the economics. You have to look at what's actually happening on the ground. And so that did plant a seed to ways in which I could actually do something that would have an impact. And I saw that just improve the road of our the mountain where our farm is, and all of a sudden there'd be more economic activity. And I saw that happening, and I, I saw, okay, well, maybe we can make some more market linkages and make some more connections between people and, and do a lot of good. And so that let me know I wanted to work more on international policy rather than just domestic to have this. I saw that in Nicaragua with a little bit of investment, you could have a lot of impact. And then that later on you know led to me working in the Senate and then branching off into coffee eventually. Incredible. What do you think you learned in those various internships that you alluded to and the years that you spent on the Hill working for Senator Whitehouse, among others, Mm -hmm. that you've taken with you into Gold Mountain? Mm -hmm. I learned that there are so many systems that need fixing whether it be in U.S. foreign assistance so that it can be more effective, whether it be in military waste. I mean, i part of a little working group of a few Senate staffers, and we cut out hundreds of millions of dollars of military waste just by asking some questions. The fact of it was incredible. And then when I was an intern in Congressman Gephardt's office, I was tasked with a few projects where just my making some inquiries about a certain topic would do good in the world. And so I I learned in not just there, but also in internships with CBS News in Boston and my local newspaper, my town newspaper in, in high school, that there are so many systems that need to be fixed. And if you just look at the world with how can I improve the ways in which we do things. So that could be that you invent something or it could mean that you come up with a better way of running something. Then you can really, I mean, it it could have monetary rewards, but could also have very positive social and environmental rewards for all of us. So that's, that's what I learned in many, many different extracurricular activities and, you know, internships. I would encourage people to have as many of them as they can I almost became a junkie in high school of extracurricular activities. And I, I think it, it taught me maybe just as much as, as college did. I'm not saying college wasn't important also, but I learned so much in all those experiences. Fantastic. So I have two final Time for Coffee questions for you, Ben. Yeah. Could you share a time in your professional life when you struggled Mm-hmm. Maybe you even crashed and burned. I know mm-hmm. I have. But mm-hmm. most importantly, how you persevered and if there was a lesson that you learned in the process. Yes. So we were starting out as this farming group. And just imagine 
you have not just the coffee from your farm, but that's actually a small part of what was our first shipping container of 280 bags of coffee, each weighing 152 pounds. I think it's, to do the math, I think it's 42,000 something pounds of coffee of poor farmers. And you are organizing, putting it into a container. And we had a very well-known big importer who prides himself on supporting farmers was going to take this coffee and they had tasted it and they had done all kinds of quality control with us. They had seen it and they said, this coffee is outstanding. And meanwhile, coffee, the coffee economy is a very difficult one. And so in the nineties, the price of coffee was below a dollar. It we're almost back there again, but in the middle term, there was a time when it actually was above $3 and the price of coffee at that time was very high. And this company was going to buy it for, I think, $4.50 a pound. That was a very, very, very high price at the time. And we were about to ship the coffee. And we had contracts, signed contracts, to sell this coffee to this big importer. And the price of coffee crashed. And this is right as we're sending pre-shipment samples because... The contract says you have to send samples and they have to be approved. And if there's a dispute, it's going to be settled by the Green Coffee Association, which is located in the U.S. And they said, you know what? This coffee just doesn't taste good. And I said, what do you mean it doesn't taste good? This isn't just one coffee. This is 20 different farmers' coffee. How could it possibly be that every single one of them doesn't taste good? And yeah, this just isn't what we were cupping earlier. And I, I said, are you kidding me? And so I started asking professionals in Nicaragua, asking professionals in the US what could be going on. I sent samples out to a lot of different people asking for advice. They said, this coffee is outstanding, is what everyone else was telling us. This is incredible. What's happening is they don't want to get stuck with expensive coffee because the price of coffee just crashed and they're completely screwing you over. And I thought, oh my goodness. I mean, I I put my own money into making Gold Mountain Coffee Growers be able to have funding to start. And I'm about to not only fail all these farmers, but fail myself and my family. And this is going to be horrible. So it was going to be a big crash and burn moment. And so what I started doing was every single night writing to every single roaster I could find and, you know, taking a lunch break or a vacation every public holiday and just calling roasters from morning to night with a set plan of all the ones I was going to call. So I could just bang out all these calls. And I was able to find roasters to buy the coffee. They loved it. And we said, we're never going to work with that importer that lacks scruples again. And we're going to just, our model is going to be working with roasters because we can't get screwed over like this again. And it made us much stronger. And that was really what set Gold Mountain Coffee Growers apart because then the roasters started getting to know us and they asked for more coffee the next year. And we started growing by word of mouth. That was a uh, scary, very, very, very scary time. And we almost went bankrupt and failed, but we were able to turn it around through very, very hard work and perseverance. I was just going to say through your hustle and refusing to give up. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was, I mean, if you just think about all of these families who many of them had been living in abject poverty and we're trying to help them turn their own lives around by connecting with markets. And meanwhile, we'd put all our eggs in one basket and that was a mistake. And that basket was about to fail us and have the bottom just fall right out. Oh my and, gosh. Um, yeah. So I should probably ask you, where is the mm-hmm. coffee market now during the coronavirus? How has it been impacted by this? So the coffee market, coronavirus or no coronavirus, is incredibly unjust. And the price of coffee right now is hovering around $1 per pound, per pound. So you go into a coffee shop and you buy one cup of coffee, and that costs more than the entire pound of coffee that coffee can be bought for on the international market. So that's incredibly unjust. And it's that would be a whole other interview topic, <laughs> but people can read it, but just Google the C market is the C market fair to coffee. And you can go learn more about that. But then in terms of the coronavirus, we were actually terrified. I thought this was going to be another moment. Like when we tried to sell to that unnamed importer whose name shall not be mentioned. And we thought that roasters, not because they wanted to, but that they were going to fail us because they couldn't 
sell their coffee. So we started calling up all these roasters. We had some contracts, but we didn't have even half of our coffee contracted yet. And believe it or not, roasters were able to stick with us. Many of them had been getting, you know, some very ethically sourced coffee and then some other more generic coffee. And so we were able to say to them, can you stick with us? We really need you to stick with us now. And if ever it made a difference, it makes a difference now that you stick with our coffee rather than buying some other coffee. And because of all these relationships, friendships, and groundwork that we've worked on for over a decade, we're going to get through this. And our coffee is actually almost sold out right now. It's wow. uh, We have a hundred something bags left out of many, many bags. And so that's actually a very low number. And I think we're ahead of where we were a year ago with sales. So we're getting through it because there are roasters out there who care and there are good people in this world. Oh, how wonderful. That's incredible. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks. Still challenging, but you know, at least we know we're going to get through it. Oh, what a relief. Yep. Final question. Mm -hmm. If you could go back to Washington University in St. Louis Mm -hmm. and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have right now, Ben, what advice would you give yourself? I was a bit reserved in college and very driven. I didn't, I wasn't one of those crazy college kids doing all kinds of crazy things. That's what I mean by being (laughs) reserved compared to what a lot of people think about as the college norm. But I, I would have enjoyed life a little bit more in college. I would say you meet so many people in college. So be incredibly social, make lots of friendships with people from all different walks of life. I felt like I did do that, but I would want to I don't know. I, I wish college could have been even more years, to be honest. It's it's just such a wonderful time to to meet people, to have experiences. I would say take advantage of if there's some kind of alternative spring break trip, a service trip, a trip to just get out into the world, do that. One of my biggest regrets in college is not going abroad twice. I realized that you don't have to just go on the set study abroad programs that the college offers you at least the case of many colleges, you could find your own even more interesting program. I found one that was called the School for International Training, SIT. Their main campus is in Brattleboro, Vermont, but their real campus is the world. And they have these trips. And so that was the trip that I went on to Nicaragua and Cuba. And that was my one semester. But I realized if I'd planned it a little bit farther ahead, I could have even gone on a second semester abroad and learned more about the world. So just take advantage of all of those different experiences and get out there and get outside your box and do things that are outside your comfort level, obviously that are safe, but enjoy life and live it up socially and in terms of the the cool experiences that you can have in college. Fantastic. And actually, I'm going to ask you one final question. Sure. What coffee do you recommend our listeners and that I should try from Gold Mountain? Okay, there are, it's almost like asking to choose between children because (laughs) we work so hard on all the different coffees that they come out with incredible cupping notes and scores. And we actually, the worst ones don't get exported or get put into a cheaper product. But that said, a really fun one to try is the Bricks Breaker. And we talked earlier about wine and coffee and people use bricks refractometers to measure the sugar content of grapes for wine. Well, we're using them to measure coffee cherries. And with our Pacamara variety, naturally processed coffee dried in the entire cherry, we get really high natural sugar readings in it. And it tastes like someone has dumped fruit and sugar and honey and all these amazing tastes into your coffee. So if you can find a roaster that has the bricks breaker, if you Google it, I bet you'll find it. But if not, send us an email or a direct message. Uh, Our social media is at goldmtncoffee. And seek out that coffee. Seek out, I mean, I love our natural process coffees. Another one's the Tropical Fruit Symphony. But also our washed coffees, I mean, I, it depends on your mood, really. But the, if I had to say, okay, have a really different experience with one, the Bricks Breaker is really different. It's won some gold medals for people in competitions. Oh, incredible. And I guess to clarify, mm-hmm. we can't buy, like the average consumer can't buy mm-hmm. directly 
from Gold Mountain because first of all, it hasn't been roasted. We need to buy right. it from a roastery in mm-hmm. the US or Canada or yep. Europe. Yes, or or even Singapore or the Middle East now. <laughs> There's some people appreciating our coffees in a lot of corners, roasters appreciating it in a lot of corners of the world now. Oh, that's so awesome. Yep. Ben, I want to thank you from the bottom of my coffee cup for making the Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. I want to thank you for being such a wonderful human being, doing the work that you're doing to help communities in Nicaragua and to educate all of us about all of the different ways that we can take our education and our passion and our interests and make this world a little bit of a better place. Thanks so much, Andrea. It's been wonderful talking and I hope that it's been educational for some people to think about what they want to do with their lives. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much. 